0: We're going to finish a three-part series that we've been working on, dear congregation. And that three-part series, which will be finished today, finished today, is entitled The Trinity in Creation, in Redemption, and in Salvation. Now, for many, this subject matter may hold little interest. But if you really think about it, church, when you ask the question, what is God? Who is God? And how can I know Him? What greater question can you ask or pose as a believing Christian? What is God? Who is God? And how can I know Him? Because the more you know about this wonderful God that created you, the better you will know how to serve Him. The less you know about how God has revealed Himself, the more weak will be your understanding and shallow of your understanding of how to live your life pleasing to God. So the subject of what is God is very evident. He's the designer. He's the creator. He's everything. He lives outside of time. He lives in eternity. God is not chained to time. He lives in the present, the future, and the past is all right before him. There's nothing you can think of that God does not already know and have thought of. There's no new thought that can ever be conceived that God has not already that God has not already known and processed. There's no new knowledge. God, God's not going to learn anything new. God knows every detail and nuance about everyone that ever lived in time and eternity. So this God that we know is so great, so marvelous, and so wonderful, He's a creator and a designer. And we can, we can understand that. All we have to do is walk out through the woods and view His marvelous, created world. But when it comes to knowing who God is, And how God wants us to know Him, that's where the Bible comes in. And only those who are Christian, who understand what God says about Himself in the Bible, are going to be able to discern and know who God is. We know what He is. He's creator, designer, He's everything, but... How do we relate to that wonderful God? Because no one has ever seen his face. No one. In all of history, Moses didn't see him. Moses had to turn his back, and God passed by as Moses hid himself in the cleft of the rock. John 1, verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. Well, in view of that fact, church, here we said in these views today, and how do you and I relate to a God who is incomprehensible? How is that? How do you and I, how do we know, how can we know more about this one eternal and ever-living, self-existing, uncreated God? Unless we open the pages of the Bible and know what the scripture itself says about God. And that's why Bible believing Christians are the only people that are going to get to know who God is. So that's what we're doing here in this lesson here today. We've been on this subject matter now for quite a while. Different we've approached it from different ways, but we we've been looking at the triunity, the triune nature of God. We've looked at the incarnate Christ, how God became man to become perfect sinless man and die for us and take our place at Calvary. So we've we've studied the incarnate, the incarnation of God in the person of Christ. And uh, then for the last two Sabbath days, we looked at the God the triune God, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we looked at how the triune nature of God works in creation, how He works in redemption, and that's what we left off last week. And now today we're going to be focusing more on how it works in salvation. Now, there's a world of believers out here that have never distinguished between the word redemption and salvation. And so that is the reason that if you're familiar with R.J. Rushduni, how many of you have ever heard the name of Rushduni? Rushduni is deceased, but he was a great theologian. And I visited with him in his house. Dolores and I stopped there. He lived in Valcito, California. And I had by previous appointment uh, been able to schedule a little time with him. And we arrived at his house. And he and his wife were very gracious. They invited us in. We had a nice, a nice wholesome conversation with, with Mr. Rushdoney. And I... I consider him to be one of the best minds, theologically speaking, in America in the last hundred years. He's really an outstanding theologian. And we made it just wonderful until we came to the end of the conversation and I wanted to ask him who he believed the elect in Scripture were, who are the people that the Bible identifies as the elect of God. And he said, well, that's a very highly controversial subject, and I choose not to, uh, to go and down that road. So he didn't want to talk about who the elect were. But I think all of you know who the elect are. The elect, of course, by Bible definition, Isaiah 45 Chapter 45 identifies Israel as God's elect people. And Matthew 15, 24, Jesus didn't waste any time when he said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the prophet Amos didn't waste any time when he said, speaking of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And that's why God punishes Israel above all other people because He gave them more than He gave any other part of the Adamic creation. Now I brought all of that up regarding Rushduni because although he is deceased, there is a publication, it's called Chalcedon. And they publish this magazine and they ran an article here in this publication, and it's kind of a classic article. And it it would really take an entire lesson to examine it. But I just want you to notice what it says about one group of people in America that believe Israel is God's chosen people. Now, they don't believe that. They don't believe Israel. If they believe it, they don't they don't say it. But here's what they wrote. They quoted from a publication out of this church, Church of Israel. And here's what it says, it is not possible to assert that redemption is for one people and salvation for another. Now this is the problem we have in Israel identity ranks. Thankfully, it's not universally true. But there are many, many theologians in conservative circles and within the remnant that believe Israel who believe that redemption is only for Israel but salvation is for the whole world. And this article then goes in and it names identity preachers who teach that redemption is for Israel alone, but salvation is for everyone. So they clearly divide between the word redemption and salvation. Now, here is what they write then about the Church of Israel. It is not possible to assert or believe that redemption is for one people and salvation for another. Salvation is the appropriation of what was secured in redemption. When Jesus died on the cross and shed his precious, sinless, spotless blood, that was a monumental event, probably the single great event that divides the New from the Old Testament. It is. But until that redemption is appropriated, it's a wonderful and glorious event. The blood was shed, but how far does that blood, what are the limitations of that blood? Is the atonement of the blood of Jesus unlimited? Did he die for the whole world? Or did he die for a people in view that he knew before the foundation of the world? You can see how difficult this theology might be. Now, he goes on to say that the church here goes on to say, this is Church of Israel, you cannot have redemption and salvation. You cannot have one without the other. If you have salvation, somebody paid the price. Redemption, that's the price paid for how we are benefit, benefactors of salvation. So you can't have one without the other. There could be no salvation of anyone without the redemption that was making that salvation possible through the death of Christ. So they go on to say, and I'll I'll just read one more statement. The church, speaking of the church here, demonstrate a firm grasp of the fundamentals of Reformed theology they only make one fatal mistake. They identify the elect not as selected from people from every race, but they hold on to Israel being only out of the race of one body. So this is a classic classic magazine, and uh, it, it really is deserving of an entire lesson. But I wanted to mention how important it is that we understand what we're talking about here this morning, and that is the Trinity in salvation. And without knowing the contrasting difference between the two words, redemption and salvation, we're sort of crippled to know how to appreciate what the Bible says. So, with that in mind, just think about this. When we study creation, we know that all members of the triune God are there. No different than I'm looking at my dear bl- brother Martin today, if you'll stand up, Martin. And uh, he's dressed in a very classic uh, suit. I like that suit, Martin. It's very becoming. Turn around so everybody can see it. Now... I I know that Martin Klingenberg is only one man, that's Martin. In the being of Martin Klingenberg, he has a unity of what that in in as a unified person, he's one person. But he's triune in his essence or being, that is, he is a spirit, a soul, and a body. Now we learned earlier from our reading in Genesis in Genesis 1:26 and God said That's Elohim a word that appears 2500 times in the Old Testament Elohim is a plural noun it's triune father son and holy spirit let us plural pronoun make man In our plural pronoun image so in creation the Father Son and Holy Spirit are all active no less than Martin here this morning who walked in here in a body he he has a body and and that body is the temple that houses his soul and his spirit so Martin employed his body to get here he uses his soul his intellect in his participation in the reading of the law this morning and then in his spirit he was communicating with his father in heaven so all parts of of, of, of uh, brother Martin were activated here today so the triune nature of God is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were active in creation. They were active in creation. They were active in redemption. And they were active agents in salvation. So all three members of the triune God, no less than the body, soul, and spirit of Martin Klingenberg, are active together as a unified whole In in functioning uh, and God relates to his people in that capacity. So what we're going to do today once we've settled the issue that redemption secured by Jesus Christ and in the Bible in the Old Testament Jesus is the forerunner of the word Redeemer. Jesus is the Redeemer of His people. He paid the price. Under the law of kinsman redemption, you're all familiar with it, Leviticus chapter number 25, verses 47, 48, and 49. Under the law of kinsman redeemer, the Redeemer had to be kinsman to those He came to redeem, right? Now think about it. Under the law of kinsman redemption, redemption has to do with our salvation the redeemer the one that pays the redemption price must be a kinsman a kinsman that means that when jesus died at calvary he was related to the people that he came to redeem could that be the reason why jesus said i'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of israel now this is a very exclusive theological position to believe and take granted in the world that we live in it's one of overwhelming rejection because the world that you and i live in today is devoted dedicated sold out on the idea of diversity equity and inclusion and brother if you don't walk down that road you are not woke and frankly, I don't want to be woke. In fact, that's not even good English. And everybody knows where the word woke comes from. It's just a, it's just a sad word to, distra- to describe a sad culture, in my humble opinion. So what we want to do today, beloved, is to know that what Jesus secured at Calvary... When he died on that old rugged cross, he paid the redemption price. The price for the redemption of those that were the object of God's love to save in salvation, the price for their redemption was the sinless, spotless blood of a perfect man. By one man, sin entered into the world, and so death passed, upon all mankind through the sin of Adam. As one man's sin, by one man's sinless life, Jesus as very man, sinless, pure, perfect, died at Calvary as a kinsman redeemer to save the people who were the object of God's love from the foundation of the world. Now, last week, remember, we tried to emphasize, capitalize, and really underscore the the meaning of John's Gospel, chapter 17. When Jesus lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee as thou has given him power over all flesh, that he, Jesus Christ, should give eternal life to as many as finish it. To as many as thou, to as many as thou has given him. Jesus was given the names of all that the Father chose to be saved. A lot of people can't handle that. Because they believe that every name that's ever been created should be on the list. That's called Arminian, hyper-Arminian theology. To believe that everybody has to be saved. But the Bible doesn't teach that. It just simply doesn't teach that. So as Christians, we are always faced with the choice of believing God's Word or using our emotional state to follow a culture, human opinion, what my friends think, what my preacher teaches. No, every Christian must be chained to the Bible. Not a preacher, not a teacher, but the Bible. They don't preach from the Bible. They don't teach from the Bible. We have a problem. So what we're going to do today is finish that verse in John 17. Thou has given Him, given Jesus, power over all flesh. That means Jesus holds Every living potential being that God determined to be saved as a gift from his Father. And then in verse 3, John 17 tells us that they might know the only true God. Listen to that. That they might know the only true God. Does God want you to know the only true God? And I say, Amen. He wants you to know that. That's how you're going to defeat Satan. That's how you're going to defeat all the enemies of your soul. That's how you're going to be a faith-believing, victorious, triumphant believer in an upside-down crazy world because you know God, that we might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Now, with that thought in mind, let's go to John 14 this morning. Everybody loves John 14, and let's look at something. The choir opened this chapter up for us this morning, so we'll capitalize on the beautiful hymn of the choir. John's Gospel, chapter 14. Everyone is familiar with it, but let's look at it. So everyone's got John 14 open. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, John 14. Who is speaking here? Who do you think is speaking? It is Jesus. Jesus is speaking. So Jesus said, in my Father's house, let's read this out loud. In my Father's house are many mansions. But before that it says something very, very important. Let not your heart be troubled. That's a good statement for all of us today. Don't leave here with a troubled heart. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in me, believe also in God. Not two gods. Jesus is, in plead, is pleading with his audience, you believe in me, you know that I'm the incarnate God. Very God, true God, and very man, true man. In my Father's house are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And what did he say? I will come again and do what? Big and loud. I will come and... So that's a very important statement. I will come, and I will do something very marvelous. I will go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. And whether I go you know, and the way you know and who's the doubting Apostle and Thomas saith unto him Lord we know not whether thou goest and how can we know the way so Thomas is not he's lost here what he doesn't understand what Jesus is saying so Jesus saith unto him unto Thomas I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's a very famous statement, church, from the lips of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the, and the light. And in the Greek, the article the means emphatically the only way. I am the way, the only way, the only truth, and the only light. One path to God our Father is through Jesus Christ. There's one mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6. One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave his life a ransom, a ransom for those he came to redeem. So, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But he didn't stop there. He said, no man knoweth what? He said, no man cometh to the Father except or but by me. Now, let's think about that. Jesus said right after he says i'm the way the truth and the life he, he says no man cometh unto the father but by me what what does jesus mean there well let's go back to the phrase i am the way the truth and the life what jesus means when he says i am the way is that i am the way to know the father Now, when we say the Lord's Prayer, we say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The way we can really appreciate who the Father is, is to know that Jesus reveals the Father to us. We would not know much about the Father, except that the entire gospel of John is telling us, through the lips of Jesus, all about the Father. All about the Father. Luke's gospel is devoted to telling us all about the Son of God, Jesus. And John's gospel, again, is all about telling us who the Holy Spirit is. That He is, He, the Holy Spirit, is equally, fully, and holy God as well. Now, when John's Gospel says, in the words of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man cometh unto the Father but by me, he, he goes on to say something that troubles the Apostles. Jesus said, If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. You would have known my Father also, for you know him and have seen him. Now that was a shock. Jesus said, You not only know him, but you have seen him, the Father, not God, not the essence of God, not the being. But you've seen the express image of the one eternal God. Jesus is that express image. So Philip is standing there. He's one of the apostles. So Philip saith unto Jesus, Show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. It sufficeth us. And Jesus turned to Philip and he said, something very quite significant he says i ha- have i been with you so long and yet hast thou not known me philip he that has seen me has seen the father how sayest thou then show us the father and you can see how important it is to really dig deep to understand the mystery. And that's why the word mystery in relationship to the being of God is enumerated by St. Paul the Apostle no less than five times as he identifies the triune nature of God in the book of Philippians and Colossians and 1 Timothy. So with those thoughts in mind, church, we're ready now to look at the trinity and salvation and let's start now with how how the Father how God relates to the Trinity how the Son relates to the Trinity how the Holy Spirit relates to the, in the triune nature to our salvation so let's go to the Apostle Peter and we'll let Peter start us out on the journey the goal here Here's the goal. I want to make this explicitly as as clear as I can, church. How does the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit interact in bringing you to salvation? How do all the members of the triune nature of God interact in bringing the blessing of redemption to you in what we call salvation? So salvation is the appropriation, it is the blessing, the fruit of redemption secured by Jesus and his precious shed blood. So let's take a moment to look at the Father. The Father is the one that we call the Elector. Now, we call him the Elector because he does the choosing. God the Father does the choosing. He does all of the the hard work of choosing who will be saved. Who will be the recipient of the blood of Jesus. God our Father determines how far the blood, uh, the atoning blood of Christ, will go. Is that blood a limited... Atonement or is it unlimited? If you are a Arminian, you would say it's unlimited, it's applicable to the whole world. But if you are a truly reformed believer in the sense that you're walking after the Reformation Fathers, and particularly the branch that call themselves Reformed from that body of Protestants, then you know that redemption is for a people that were chosen by the Father from the foundation of the world. And I merely have to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, where it says, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Or I could turn to 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 9, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Or we could go to Titus, Titus chapter 1 and 2. We have a little boy named Titus sitting here. He just heard his name. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the choice that our Father made was before the foundation of the world, before time. Before the world, God chose a people whom He would save. So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Correction, chapter 1, verse 2. 1 Peter 1, verse 2. Verse 1 tells us who Peter is talking to. To the strangers. Strangers are the sojourners among the Israel of the dispersion. They are the people in dispersion, scattered throughout Pontus, Asia, Bithynia, Asia, Galatia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Look at 1 Peter 1, 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of who? God the Father. What is foreknowledge? Foreknowledge is to know beforehand. Foreknowledge is to know something before it occurs. In the foreknowledge of God, He chose who will be saved. In the foreknowledge of God the Father, through what? Sanctification of? Who's the next part of the triune God in focus here? Sanctification of the Spirit is the word Spirit capitalized. It is and not for without a good reason. That word Spirit is designating the person of the Holy Spirit. Through the blood, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So Peter, the apostle, shows how all three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are involved in salvation. God the Father is the elector. Jesus is the redeemer. The Holy Spirit is the sanctifier. God the Father does the electing. The Son does the redeeming. The Holy Spirit does the sanctifying. Now, what's hard about that? Now, that's how we get to know who God is and how God, the one true living God, appropriates and reveals Himself in the wonderful and wonderful act of salvation. So let's look at something else now when we think of God our Father and the role that He plays. Now, if you have your little worksheet, some of you will still have it. You have a copy of it. And we've written here, God the Father is the elector. He does the choosing. The people chosen in election are often called sheep, since these people have many characteristics of the animal that we call sheep. Now, the Bible talks about the swine. Aren't you glad he doesn't say, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't say, I have come to save the lost swine of this earth? He didn't say that. I've come to save the lost sheep. He didn't come to to save the snakes. Oh, yeah. The Bible says there are snake people. In fact, Jesus addressed some of them when he said, You serpents, you vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? That's strong talk. Hey, that's Jesus' talk. That's the side of Jesus the world seldom hears. Jesus knew who the snake people were. And he knew where they came from, but most Christians don't. They don't have an idea where the snake people come from. don't know and neither do a lot of identity people who don't know the truth about Genesis 315 but that's another story so we won't we won't open that book so I want you to I want you to think now for a moment I know it's a lost art but let's let's do some thinking I want all of us to see how Jesus elevates the role of God our Father in salvation. Let's let's do that for a little bit. Let's see how Jesus elevates God the Father's role in salvation. And let's start in the Gospel of John by going to chapter 6. John chapter 6. In John chapter 6... Beginning in verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. Then he goes on to say, All that the Father giveth me shall what? I'm in John 6. I started with verse 35. All that the Father giveth me shall Come to me. Now, is that an affirmative statement? Did Jesus say, All that the Father giveth me might come? They could come. It's possible them, for them to come, or did he say, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out? For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father, the Father's will that has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me. See how Jesus is elevating God his Father. All that the Father giveth me, all that the Father giveth me shall come. All the th- it, and it is the will of the Father that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. And I shall raise him up again at the last day. Now drop down to John 6, 44. What did Jesus say there? <clears throat> Let's see how, how important is the role of God the Father. That's the question here. Jesus in John 6:44 said, "No man can come." I think that's a double negative. "No man can come unto me," Jesus said of himself. "Except the Father which has sent me, draw him." How emphatic is that statement? No man can come to me except the Father draw him. Now, what member of the triune nature of God does the drawing? God the Father does the electing. The Holy Spirit does the drawing, the wooing, persuasiveness. The Holy Spirit is the catalyst, the persuasor. He is the great persuasive one that draws people to salvation. He does it by a quickening process. So that's very important that we see that. Now, let's look at a little more about Jesus Honoring the role of the Father in salvation by going to John 10. In John 10, the Gospel of John, chapter 10, look at verse 26. We read this verse. Jesus says, words of Jesus, But you believe not. But you believe not. Because you are not my sheep. Now, if I believe what is taught from the pulpits of modern America, I wouldn't know what to do with John ten twenty six. Jesus clearly says, "But you don't. You believe not because you are not of my sheep." And then he goes on to explain why. In John ten twenty six. You're not, you believe not, because you're not of my sheep, as I said unto you, My sheep, sheep, hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never, never perish. Now, there's a whole theological battle over once saved. Are you always saved? If you believe your Bible, look at what it says. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Do you believe your Bible? No man is able to pluck them out of my hand, the ones that God chose to be saved, that Jesus, the Redeemer, redeemed. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all. Father gave me. Jesus is not going to save anyone, excepting the ones that His Father gives Him, to save, be saved. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Now, we could spend a lot of time, church, emphasizing the role of God the Elector. And the great key word is foreknowledge. In the foreknowledge of God, He purposes out of His own good will to save whom He will. Now, somebody says, well, is that just? Well, of course it is. God doesn't have to save anyone, theologically speaking. One man, sin entered into the world by one man, Adam. So death passed upon all men for that all have sinned in Adam. If you and I have been in the Garden of Eden... would we have made the choice that Adam and Eve made? If, if any of the women in this body this morning would have been in the role of Eve, and, all, and one man being in the role of Adam, would they have sinned like the first Adam and the first Eve? Nobody is willing to commit. But you know good and well that we would. How do you know that? For as by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and so death passed upon all, for that all have sinned. What is the universal proof that everyone is a sinner, is born into sin, and without the redeeming blood of Christ will die in their sin. The ultimate proof is that everyone ultimately dies. Little children in the womb can perish before they're ever born. Little children can be born stillborn. God is no res- Death is no respecter of persons. The grim reaper called death can come to anyone because sin is a universal problem. So God the Father does the choosing, but let's look at the Son of God who does the redeeming. Jesus does the redeeming. Now, I would like to suggest, church, that for just a few moments here that all of us think about this next part of the, how the triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work in salvation. God the Father did the choosing. He didn't, he wasn't tortured. He didn't suffer pain and agony in doing the choosing. In fact, Psalm one fifteen says, "But our God is in the heaven; He does whatsoever He pleases." How many of this body here today will grant that God can do anything He pleases? God is a free God. God can do anything He wants, and it and God chose out of a fallen race. He chose an election, an election. Of people to be saved. And He set aside the grace through the blood of Christ to save them. So Jesus, in the role of the Redeemer, does the unthinkable. God, our Father, uncreated God, takes on the form of man in the, in the seed of Abraham. Uncreated God steps out of eternity in the person of Jesus and takes on manhood. Perfect man, very man, 100% man, and as 100% man, he does the unthinkable. He becomes the payment for the sin of all the people that were chosen by the Father to be saved. Now, when this happens, when Jesus, as very man, and this is what every Christian must know, not one moment, not one second in the, in the suffering of Christ did he ever depend on his divinity. Jesus died as fully man. So that if you would imagine, if you would imagine any one of the men or the women making the sacrifice that Christ made, you would know that the Bible says that he was tempted in every point as we are tempted. So you have to experience the suffering. You have to personalize and know that just as that torturous death on the cross would have impacted Jesus, it would have impacted you in the same way. Or the same way that it would impact you, it it impacted Him. Now, here's what happened at Calvary. When Jesus picked up the cross and walked the Diel Diel Rosa, the road to the cross... And he carried that cross, and remember that Isaac was the forerunner of that. Isaac carried the wood to fuel the fire that would make him a burnt sacrifice. Talk about the obedience of a son. Isaac is the one. He carried the wood to the top of Mount Moriah, so that when he came to the, to the building of the altar, and Isaac said to Abraham, well, here's the altar, and now here's the fire, but where is the offering? And his father said, you're going to be the offering. Can you imagine that tense moment? Now, you, you do know that Isaac was fully capable physically resisting that event. He could have resisted. He was a fully grown young man. But Isaac humbled himself, and his father tied him up so that he, under the fire of that burning altar, when he cried out in anguish and suffering, that he couldn't get away and run And run and start, just start running. So Abraham ties him up. And just as Abraham raises his arm with the knife. And his son thought, oh my goodness. Here comes, here comes the end. And with the knife raised in midair, the voice from heaven saying, Abraham, Abraham. No, I myself will provide the lamb. A ram is in a thicket. Abraham catches the ram, turns Isaac loose. And Isaac, by substitutionary replacement of a ram, Isaac lives. He's one of our patriarchal fathers. Aren't you glad? But Isaac was a type of Jesus excepting that when Jesus was going to be nailed to the cross no one intercepted god did not intercept the suffering of Jesus god our father remained aloof the holy spirit was withdrawn from Jesus the holy spirit could not be his Jesus had to die alone for the sin of his people. That's you and I. He bore our sin at Calvary alone. Psalm 22 is that wonderful psalm. It's called the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament. And it begins with an expression that's it, that Jesus uttered at Calvary my god my god why hast thou what forsaken me those are the most somebody said in theological history no word in scripture is so deeply moving as when jesus said at calvary my god My God, why hast thou forsaken me? That word forsaken in the Greek is abandoned. God abandoned Jesus. The Holy Spirit abandoned Jesus. He's alone at Calvary. That's why everyone, everyone, at any point in time, must think about the price paid for your salvation. Isaiah said it this way, He is de- despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him, and he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded, say it with me, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all, we have all gone astray. Wandered from the way. The Old Testament is loaded down with the role of Jesus in our salvation. Jesus is the Redeemer. He did the redeeming. And the price of redemption was His blood. And when we are called out of the darkness of this world and drawn to God our Father by the power of the Holy Spirit, then that Holy Spirit draws us to the only remedy for our sin, and that is Christ. Christ alone is the only remedy for our sin. That's why he deserves all the love and worship that we can ever give him. So I'm going to ask the congregation for the next moment or two to turn to the gospel of Matthew. I'd like everyone to turn there if you would. If you would be so kind to go to the book of Matthew chapter 27. The gospel of Matthew 27. We're looking at Jesus Uh, As the one who pays the price. The Redeemer. God the Father does the choosing. Jesus. God is the Father is the Elector. Jesus is the Redeemer. Now. We'll come down to verse. We'll come down to verse. 45. Let's start with Matthew 40. Matthew uh, chapter number 27 verse 45. Let's read together. Now from the sixth hour, that's 12 o'clock high noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. What's the ninth hour? Three o'clock in the afternoon. There's a total eclipse. Jesus is hanging on the cross. Now what has happened to Jesus as they bring him to that cross? He is dehydrated. He has been beaten with a cat of nine tails. He, his flesh is so raw. His face is so marred that he's unrecognizable. How many seen the Passion Play? If You've seen the great Passion Play by Mel Gibson. You know that that's not an exaggeration. That movie is not an exaggeration of the pain and suffering of Jesus Christ. And he suffered as a man, not as God, but as a man. By man came death, by man came the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. Now about the ninth hour, what time of the day is that? It's very important. It's, not, it's three o'clock in the afternoon. Je- Jesus cried with a loud voice and he repeated the words of Psalm 22, 1 which says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken or abandoned me? Eli, Eli, lama sabathani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What did Jesus mean, church? Jesus knew that he died alone at Calvary. The Father could not look upon him. Because God could not look upon the one who's paying the price for sin. Sin costs God a lot. And that's why the, whole, the Bible says that when we sin, it grieves the Holy Spirit. You cannot grieve the wind or electricity or something that people want to make the Holy Spirit. You grieve the Holy Spirit because He is God. Ephesians 4.30 My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken or abandoned me? Now the people standing around the cross said, well, call on Elijah. Call, call Elijah or one of the prophets to come and save you. But Jesus died alone he died alone for you and i what does your salvation mean to you salvation is not cheap grace it cost the son of god as fully man every ounce of who he was as a man. That Jesus could endure the torture, the suffering. The most innocent person who ever lived on this earth endured the greatest punishment ever dealt to anyone in history. The most innocent person who ever lived suffered the greatest torturous death. He finally suffocated to death. And when Jesus gave the Spirit, released the Spirit from His body, the soul of Jesus descended into Sheol, Old Testament word for the Greek word Hades, or translated hell. Jesus went into hell to deliver the captives From their prison. Jesus endures everything that people could ever endure. He went from death, from life to death, from death into hell, and back again. Jesus, our Redeemer. And finally, in closing, Jesus the Redeemer, the Father, the Elector, and the Holy Spirit is the Sanctifier. Now, the Holy Spirit is the most depreciated member of the triune God. He is the one that is most neglected. And it's sad because he is the most neglected member of the triune God. It's sad, church. And let me tell you why jesus your advocate is now in heaven he is your advocate the word advocate is like an attorney jesus is pleading the cause of the remnant before god our father today in heaven it is jesus who is pleading our case that god would have mercy upon the remnant of his people and jesus is our advocate in heaven But who is our advocate on earth? Well, let me prove it to you from the Bible. Open your gospel, the book of the Bible, to the gospel of John, and this is where we're going to be closing. Now, I know we've been in the gospel of John a lot. But let's go to John. Let's go to John chapter 16. Uh, chapter 14. Let's go to John 14. Let's go to John 14, 16. John 14, 16. That is where we're going to head. This is Jesus speaking. And I will pray the Father. John fourteen sixteen. I will pray the Father, and He... Shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you. How long? Forever. Even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither know him, knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. Do you see all three members? of the triune god in that verse look closely John 14:16 is the place your eyes should be John 14:16 And I Jesus will pray the Father and he who is he He God the Father will give you another comforter who is the comforter? Holy Spirit, sanctifier, is the comforter. If you are filled with anxiety, you need the peace that only the Holy Spirit is going to give you. You need it. John 14:26 same chapter. Let your eyes go to verse 26 we're coming down the home stretch. But the comforter whom the Father will Send in my name. How many persons in the triune nature of God is at at play here? But the Comforter, Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He shall teach you all things. How do you know what the Bible is supposed to be saying to you? Who Who is your teacher? The Holy Spirit. He will bring all things to your remembrance. John 14, 26 has Jesus, has the Holy Spirit, and it has the Father. All three members of the triune nature of God are right in plain view. And yet you have a world of people all over creation who deny the triune nature of God. How can that be? How can you believe the Bible and deny the triune nature of God? Ask yourself that question. Your salvation may depend on what you believe. Let's go to John 15, 26. Third time John is telling us this. But when the Comforter is come, Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father. We say in the Nicene Creed, proceeding from the Father through the Son. When I will send unto you from the Father, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Three times in two chapters, the Apostle John steps out on the scene of history. Now, you have to know, church, that God chose John the Apostle to give the most elaborate, precise, and comprehensive view of the nature of God that's found in the Bible. That's why the Gospel of John is an absolute must for you to study. You have to study the Gospel of John, not just read it. So in closing today, church, I would be remiss if I did not end the, the role of the Holy Spirit as sanctifier with two important verses, and here they are, two important verses. In 1 John 5, 7, there are scholars who believe that this verse does not belong in the Bible. I didn't use it in John reference to the Apostle John until last because I don't need to use 1 John 5, 7 at all. I don't need to use that verse. A lot of people don't believe it. But I believe it. I accept 1 John 5, 7 as gospel truth. It's organic, no preservative added Bible truth. So here it is, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father and the Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word was made flesh. John identified the Word, the Logos, as Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. So, there are three that bear record in heaven the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear record in the earth. Three that bear record in the earth. They are the Spirit, the Water, and the Blood, and these three agree in one. Great difference between being one and agreeing in one. Big difference. So do you believe 1 John 5, 7 and 8? I do. But each to his own. I I don't need 1 John 5, 7 and 8 to prove the triune nature of God at all. But it's been there. And in some manuscripts it goes back to the apostles and that's good enough for me. So here's the final verse. And we'll leave the the tape going, Nathan, but everybody can stand. Everybody can stand. This is, now, the reason I'm going to use this as a closing verse today is because the verse I'm going to give you now is one that is paramount, significant to everyone living Standing in this church or sitting or lying down or asleep. Here it is. And the very God of peace sanctify you holy. That's W H O L L Y. Very God of peace sanctify you holy. Now, who is the sanctifier? Who is the sanctifier? Come on. The Holy Spirit. The very God of peace sanctify you holy. and I pray, God, I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved, be preserved unto the day of the coming of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.